today, best practices have become this output from blogs, from all these inbound marketers who are trying to get traffic and, and all these backlinks, right? So we've polluted best practices to the point where I would say scrap best practices. Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to everyonehatesmarketers.com. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. EveryoneHatesMarketers.com is a podcast for digital marketers who are sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I interview no-nonsense marketers who are not afraid to cut through the bullshit and say things as they are. So during this show, we learn how to get more visitors, more leads, more customers, more long-term profit by using good marketing, by treating people the way we like to be treated. So head over to everyonehatesmarketer.com to subscribe to our email list. I will notify you before anybody else of our future guests. You'll help me come up with great questions for them. Uh, I'll give you access to our numbers, such as the number of downloads we get. And also, quite simply, to have great conversations uh, between us and, and get feedback and perhaps build a community. So head over to, to everyonehatesmarketers.com for this particular task. So if you haven't listened to the first episode with DHH, have a listen as I give more information about the concept. So in this third episode, I talked to David Darmanin, and he's the CEO of Hotjar. So Hotjar is an all-in-one analytics and feedback tool for your websites. We actually use Hotjar every day in our business. We use it to understand how visitors behave on our website, what they think, and what we could improve. Uh, so it's actually a suite of six products, if I'm not mistaken, that you can set up on your website, such as heat maps, website polls, website recordings, and there are a few others that are very interesting. So you can go to hotjar.com if you want to check them out. And I actually discovered them on Product Hunt almost two years ago. And the way they launched their product is quite fascinating. So we, we're going to discuss that during the podcast. By the way, I need to say that they are not endorsing me in any way. I'm just saying that because it's the truth. I genuinely love Hotjar and it's a pleasure to have David on the show. So before Hotjar, David actually worked for Conversion Rate Experts, which is one of the biggest conversion rate optimization agency in the world. So here is what you're going to learn in this third episode of everyonehatesmarketer.com. You learn why his granddad is an inspiration for his endeavors and different projects. You learn how he met his co-founders. You learn why trade secrets are overrated, why you need to spend more time in the real world, why some small decisions you're taking can change the face of your business for the worst, why you shouldn't rely on best practices at all. And then he's also going to teach us the three most common wins on your website uh, that are actually very valuable. Those are not hacks or, or small tactics. Those are things that work, that will always work. So those are very interesting if you want to improve your website conversion rate or website sale. And finally, he's going he's gonna to share with us the one book that transformed the way he's thinking about marketing. So have a listen and let me know what you think. Hi, David. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Um, <laughs> I've listened to one of your talk recently and you're saying that you studied law. Uh, law uh, you know, my French is, my accent is always tricky with this kind of world. I um, love your accent, Louis. <laughs> what do you think is better? Is it to study law and become a, a lawyer or is it to launch and, and run a hot jar as a, as this new, new business? Oh, that's the trickiest question ever, right? Yeah. I, I don't think I would compare the two, but I'd say 
to me, because I enjoy doing it, Hajar is easier. <laughs> so, so law was much more difficult. Well, it's not a surprise, right? But in a different, in a different way. Um, but then from a people point of view and, and, and focusing on building, let's say a movement. Now we're entering a phase where studying to become a lawyer is like nothing compared to this, right? Mainly from a responsibility point of view, let's say, but, but yeah. So you wanted to be a lawyer or did you just go to law, like to study law just because you didn't know what you wanted to do? That's a great question. At the age of 15, 16 in the country I am, and probably not just here, someone typically gives you this weird advice, or at least back then they did, <laughs> based on what you're good at, like what you should probably be doing. I was good at languages. Um, and here in Malta, like if you're good at, at languages, you're like, you're, you're a lawyer, like that's it. And <laughs> I was quite opinionated. So that, that strengthened that direction even more. Pity that back then no one realized if I'm good at languages, maybe I should be studying like uh, development, right? Tech. But, uh, but yeah, my passion bubbled through Um, but I'm, I'm quite a hard headed type of guy. So once I started law, then I wanted to finish it. But I, as many of my uh, fellow students would say, I barely went to most of the lectures. So I was busy opening businesses and had three jobs. So I was all over the place. What do you mean three jobs? So I was, I was, I was sometimes like juggling like three different jobs, working different roles, part-time and stuff while I was studying law. Hmm. Um, and then you moved on, and I believe your first kind of full-time job as a designer project manager was in was last century. <laughs> I don't want to make you feel bad. It was in 1999, no. wasn't it? Yes, it was. Thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> yes, you're very welcome. Um, so, like the transition between a becoming a potentially a lawyer uh, to designer project manager, how did it happen? Yeah, and that's why I mentioned the jobs. So. Back when when I was just starting college and preparing myself for the law uh, six year doctorate nightmare, um, I participated in a in a program which is a European program called Young Enterprise. Basically, it's this idea that you start your own company, build your own company, you have a product, blah blah blah. And it was such an exhilarating experience for me. Back then, I was already doing design just to make some money. Um, I always have been obsessed about kind of somehow turning a profit by doing something. Um, so then all of a sudden I saw that my visual skills were kind of applicable to, to business, right? So that's, that's where it all started. So I continued doing this on multiple jobs and the business I said I opened during the law doctorate, that was an advertising agency. So it was kind of an evolution. And then by the end of, of the whole uh, doctorate, when I finished and I went a few times to court, I was like, this is not going to happen. Um, and that's where it was great to have the support of my family who said, you're a great designer. Like you have great leadership skills. Just go build, go do whatever you want to do basically but you didn't you never really studied design you learned it on the side almost correct so i'd say a lot a lot of self-learning uh, and then the break for me came after that so i had a few roles after university but then i saw an ad in the paper back then i was trying to build a startup with my cousin a tiny thing but it was basically a wordpress back then wordpress was still being built as well but we had no chance in hell of succeeding. Um, but I saw this ad in the paper where the Swedish company Malta said, we have uh, millions of page views. We want someone to optimize this traffic. And I was like, ooh, this sounds like the perfect learning experience. Um, and yeah, that's, that's the job where I then went um, 
on to meet my four co-founders of Hodger. There's something I always want to know about somebody. And do you have any entrepreneurs in your family or are you the kind of the first one starting? Well, the, in today's age, I'd say probably I'm the first one. But my, my grandfather, who's still alive, is in his 90s. He's been um, quite an entrepreneur, to be honest. So he's had he's opened his own clothing shop. He self-taught himself how to uh, become a tailor, basically, then self-taught himself everything about running a bar and open his own bar. So a different type of entrepreneurship, but it's the, definitely the same spirit, I would say. Uh, am I right to say that he's, uh, he might be an inspiration for you? Um, could be, actually. I've never thought about that because I, I kind of remember myself as a kid looking at him like, yeah, may, I think you've just hit, hit, hit on to something there. Well done. No, because like I saw the two similarities in the sense that you learn design on your own and you crafted that, you know, after years of, of experience, you become very good at it. And it seems like your grandfather was, did the same. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I've always admired, I always remember from a very young age, admired um, creators. That was like, for me, the main thing, no? more than entrepreneurship per se. In fact, it took me quite a few years to, un to truly understand the concept of profit and business. So I created quite a few businesses, <laughs> focused too much on the creation aspect and building value, only to then realize that that alone is not enough, right? So you need to, to monetize. Is there any particular event in your life that made you who you are today? Because you're such a driven guy, you know what you want. You, you mentioned that you were a little bit of a contrarian in a sense, which I am as well. So any particular event that you can pinpoint? That's a good question. I don't think, I don't think there was. At least my parents say that even from a very young age, I've always been very opinionated and like... <laughs> want question everything. So I think it I think it's a mix of character and and as you said it's a mix of drive and just kind of wanting to get things done. So I consider myself to be a very very lucky person that like my character like really satisfies my needs in a way if you know what I mean. So it's like I find balance with myself. So after this this first work experience, you you created this advertising agency. You decided to quit law for good, and and then you turned into this designer project manager, and you moved on to conversion rate expert, which uh, which is a conversion rate optimization agency until two years ago, and then I think the magic happened. I mean, at least for us, because we are using Hotjar every day, and you're not paying me to say that it's the truth. And we had fun working with it. And it's not like, it's not this type of tool where it's a struggle to use or you feel like, oh, I need to use Hotjar again, right? It's more in the contrary. It's like, hey, I'm going to have to use Hotjar today. And it's like, it's a good thing, right? So I think you've, you've achieved quite a lot in such a small amount of time. But going back to the very start of Hotjar, can you tell us how you got the very first customers? Good question. So we never, we never kind of thought about it that way. Like, how do we get our first customers? So in a way, it's difficult for me to think back to how we actually did. But kind of the, the, the short answer to the question is we got our first customers and we didn't even realize we had our first customers. But the longer, the longer answer to, to, to that question is, uh, before Hajar, I worked in another company. I'm not referring to conversion rate experts with, with, uh, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to be negative or point fingers or anything. This was a long time ago. You, you, pointed out kind of indirectly my age, right? Um, but this company was kind of run 
in the total opposite of the way Hajar was run, right? And in a way, I always like to, when I'm speaking at events around the world, I always like to say, okay, so here's this notion, this concept, right? And to explain it, I'm going to first tell you what is the opposite of it. I, I really think that starting with the opposite really helps explain the, the other end. So in a way, this company that I worked for was kind of the opposite of Hajar and it drove us to kind of build Hajar the way it was. So um, it was very revenue oriented and... Everything was kind of hidden, so very privately owned, and like uh, there's the owners, and then there's the employees. Um, we went out and did advertising, and we acquired customers. I, I had pushed to do a beta, but we were like, no, beta is going to take us too long to make money. Um, so in a way, with Hodra, it was kind of one grand experiment of doing kind of nearly the opposite of everything, right? Which is... In my previous company, when we did things that I didn't believe in and, and maybe we made mistakes, I felt that our CEO should go out there and say, we made a mistake and here's how we're going to fix it. But they never thought that way. So in a way, I, I wanted to build a company where the CEO would do that, right? So long answer to that question is from day one, we focused a lot on here's what we're building and more importantly, how we're going to build it. And we resonated not only with what we were building, but how we were building it. So the way we did the beta, the way we were transparent, the product roadmap. So in essence, we had small uh, sites using us, which we had no idea were pet projects of people working in big Fortune 500 companies, who then a few months down the line were just so like big believers, big fans of Hodger that they kind of got the customer for us, if you know what I mean. That's probably the best way to grow, isn't it? For the listeners out there, obviously, I will mention that in the show notes, but am I right to say that you have now 160,000 customers, probably more now at this stage? Well, not exactly customers. So those would be more... Users. Um, yeah, it's actually more sites. So users, we have more than that. So it's complicated because with Hodra, you've got like an account and then you've got organizations and then sites within and then unlimited users. So it's very difficult for us to give stats about <laughs> like what's going on. But we like to use sites. So our vision for Hodger is we want to change the way the web is built, is built, right? So we want to become much more empathetic, much more user-driven. So we measure ourselves based on sites. So our big, hairy, audacious goal is one day 10 million sites will use Hodger. So that means we've changed the way the web is being built, right? So, um, so we use sites. So I'd say I think we've had around just around 200,000 sites set up kind of, or sign up for Hodger. And I think we have around 160,000 active sites collecting data. Such an achievement. Thank you. You're a very transparent guy. That's also why I wanted to connect with you and, and talk to you in this podcast. But I'm going to challenge you with this question. Can you share something that you never told anyone about Hodger? That's a good question. Probably not something I've never told anyone because I reveal probably way too much. <laughs> yeah, one thing actually, because I realized I didn't mention because you asked me the questions, you, well, at least you mentioned customers. We typically don't mention customers. So actually customers, we have just shy of 10,000 customers. Um, that's a, like a metric we don't share that much purely because kind of we don't want to think anyone to think that we're showing off or anything. Um, but yeah, something that we, we, we don't say that much about Hotjar. Yeah, I'd say one thing which is important to share, especially for anyone who's kind of who wants to be an entrepreneur, is when we were starting off and building Hotjar, we honestly really had no clue what we were doing. 
So we figured out so many things later on. So I, I kind of want to share this and I don't get to mention that much on, on interviews because everyone typically interv- people interviewing me are kind of they're focused on trying to make me look good for some reason. But I think it's more interesting to focus on like what have we learned. So we really had no clue what we were doing. But I would say just because we focused on what was important, so our users and, and value creation, things just kind of settled themselves out, right? We figured things out. So as opposed to maybe if we tried to design success or to kind of force it, then if, if you fail, then success kind of fails you, right? So, so I'd say that that's the biggest takeaway. I guess that's a, that's a great tip for, for, for people thinking about creating their own business. And I can share the exact same thing to, to, to listeners. We still don't have much of a clue of what we're doing day to day. And it's true. And you probably still don't. I mean, you've probably learned a lot and you've made a lot of mistakes and you've probably, you know, found solutions to those mistakes. But there are so many, so many things we still don't know. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. And that means there's so much potential to grow, isn't it? Yeah. And actually, when we recruit, it's something that we really look for. We look for two aspects. One is a mindset of, I know, I don't know. And the second one is a proof record of learning, not experience, that they've actually absorbed knowledge or skills relatively quickly. Those are the Mm. two things which are really important to us. That makes sense. Uh, Talking about transparency a little bit more, uh, for the listeners listening uh, to this podcast and who don't know much about Hotjar, one thing that I blew me away the first time I saw it is that you guys were sharing your product roadmap. So you were actually sharing in advance what features or what bugs or what fixes you're going to work on. And that goes against every Fortune 500 or 5,000 or 2,000, most of them, uh, vision and, and, and values. Like, what do you mean? Are you, are you sharing features to the world? But people will kind of copy you. They're going to clone what you're doing. You're going to be fucked, right? And what do you say to that? Yeah, that's kind of part of the... We didn't know what we were doing, right? <laughs> no, I'm joking. No, I think the thing is, in a way, if you really think about it, if our competitors look at our roadmap and follow us, that's exactly where I want them to be. So in a way, it's kind of, if, if I may, and now I'm following suit, I tend to drop the F-bomb every now and then. And now and then. It's, like, it's like giving them a brain fuck nearly. It's like, here's what we're going to do. And they're like, shit, so if this is what they're going to do, it's like, it's, it's, you know what I mean? It's, it's kind of keeping the team on our toes that we need to move fast because we've already told everyone what we're going to do, right? And we're not going to succeed based on what we're going to do, but how we're going to do it, how we're going to execute on that. Um, but yeah, in a way, I don't. I think in general, like the opposite of transparency, so the whole kind of trade secrets and business secrets and everything are really overrated. That's 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 my opinion, at least. As yeah, in it no, does, I agree. Yeah, it, it doesn't really take, take like it, it's not that kind of mind blowing to figure out what what the company is going to do next. You know what I mean? So, I think there's we when we weighed it out and we saw the value of our users and customers knowing that we're proactively planning ahead to fix the problems they're telling us, versus a few competitors knowing what what we're doing but knowing not how we're going to do it. It's like it's it's a no brainer, right? Um, mm. so that, that's our take on it. And we might be wrong. We've been wrong many times before. <laughs> uh, but am I, am I right to say that you're not sharing everything either? And I think uh, you, you, you keep a few surprises up your sleeves, right? 
Um, yeah, everyone does, right? I'd say we're always careful in the roadmap to not reveal too much of what 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 is what. So we just released incoming feedback, which is a new beta um, this week. So we had that written on the list for quite a long time. But again, like many people had no clue what that that was going to be. Um, so so yeah. In a way, yeah, we are obviously we're we're not idiots, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, obviously, and it makes complete sense. It makes complete sense. Moving on to to the realm of of digital marketing and and digital uh, in, in general, um, there's something that completely blows my mind still as of today is that it seems like some businesses are still run. It's, it seems like you have to remain businesses that they have to care about people. They have to care about their employees and they have to care about customers. And to me, that's such a crazy idea to tell them that because that's obvious, right? I mean, if you don't have customers, you don't have money. If you don't have money, you can't pay yourself. If you can't pay yourself, your business is nowhere, right? Why do you think we still today have to repeat the fact that businesses have to listen to, to customers or at least to care about them? Yeah, I think, I think it's just part of human nature that some people are just maybe a little bit too greedy or a little bit too selfish. But I think what's made the situation worse is that the whole evolution into digital has kind of forced us in a way to be a little bit blinder, let's say. It's so easy today to launch a digital business and, and, and the interface in inverted commas between the business owners or the business and their customers is digital, right? It's, it's bits and bytes. So that filter in between is, is so e it, it makes it so easy to become lazy and look only at the numbers and the lines. And we're guilty of this as well. It's so easy to have a few weeks where you sit back and you see the lines going up and the numbers going well and you're like, shit, yeah, things are good. But it's so easy to not realize that there might be big cracks opening up that the numbers don't show. So in a way, our vision with Hotjar is actually to build a tool that gives you that empathy that kind of breaks that down. And in fact, it's kind of ironic that as a software kind of builder, <laughs> when I'm out at events, I always remind people because they're always super uh, energized by this idea. We want to use Hotjar and we love Hotjar. And I tell them like the most valuable tool you have is your eyes, your ears, your brain. And thank God, no. SaaS company has built kind of a, a model around that yet, right? So, but just because there is no one who built a model and blogging about it and tweeting about it, right? It doesn't get the same level of visibility as, as, as the rest. So I think it's the whole digital movement has, has impacted, has impacted it a lot. So typically the companies that are really good about caring are the ones where the founders have innate character strengths um, that are related to that. So for example, I'm very lucky. I did The Strength Finder, which is an awesome book I highly recommend. And one of my strengths is called individualization. Apparently, um, I kind of see the world from other people's eyes. So it is a fact, even from a, from a psychological or physiological point of view, that certain humans are more adept at, at being more kind of empathetic. So in a way, companies that don't have this in the founding team, bring it in, right? Find someone who is empathetic and, and bring, bring that on board. I think the lack of, of females on board is probably one of the biggest reasons why we have not, not a lot of empathy, actually. 
And I think I completely agree. I I don't know if it's connected, and I think it is connected. Um, I've read in a research somewhere uh, recently that the more, if you have more women than men in your business, at least more 50-50, your business will work better, will innovate better. And to me, that makes sense. And that's why in our business, we always try to reach at least 50-50. But if we could, we only, we would get more women than men. And I, th- and I know it was not a joke, but yeah, but it's, I think it makes sense. I think it no, makes sense. It makes sense. As in the way I meant it was not a sexist reference, right? But yeah, more yeah. like the fact that if you are a panel of five men selling to men and women, like at the outset, already you cannot be empathetic, right? Then there are studies which actually show maybe not conclusively, that, that women are, are more empathetic than men. But anyway, even if we just take it on the, on, the, on the concept of it's so easy to build a founding team and surround yourselves with people that see things in a very particular way already can block your empathy, let alone the digital filter we talked about, right? So, so if, if, if I would say anything, it would be to founders or budding founders or entrepreneurs, it's just to spend more time um, in in the real world, speaking to customers face to face and and whatnot. Hey, uh, you touch on your vision uh, for Hoja. Can you just repeat it briefly? The, your vision for Hoja. So yeah, so I don't know if it's good or bad, but early on we decided we wouldn't share our vision that much. We kind of thought our users maybe don't care that much about our vision; they care more about what we're building. But our vision is. So basically, we want to change the way the web is built and improved by democratizing um, user analytics and feedback. So by kind of, in a way, it's what we just said, right? By breaking down that that, um, filter, that divide. Because that's a question I usually ask. And I always start by stating the fact that internet is quite polluted at the minute, right? You can see a lot of pop-up ads and a lot of ads that people don't want to see. People protect themselves with ad blockers. There's a lot of content, too much content. You don't know where to look. It seems like a lot of companies are just producing content for the sake of it. And I think people get sick, uh, sicker and sicker of that, right? Uh, but I think you already answered the question that I wanted to ask, which is, you know, how do you think marketers could make internet a better place? But based on your vision, marketers could make internet a better place by being more empathetic, by listening. Right. I think so. And because it's interesting, right? Like ask a marketer that does pop-ups on their site, like what do you, what type of business do you want to have? Or what, like if you were a taxi company, what type of taxi company do you want to be? Right. Do you want to be the guy on the corner bugging everyone like at the airport? You know what I mean? Those guys are like, you want a taxi, want a taxi, want a taxi. Um, Or you want to be the one, the taxi brand that everyone kind of books because they are the safest. Or do you want to be the restaurant on, on a, on a busy street, like bugging everyone that passes by? Like you want to, you know what I mean? Or, or build up a reputation of being a, a, like a good, like a, a good eatery, right? So, and and some and most cases I see them like look back at me in astonishment, like they never thought about it that way, like they don't realize that these small decisions they take are transforming their business. So so yeah, I agree with you. I think marketers have such a big responsibility in shaping what the business is going to become, because the behavior of the site is kind of the behavior. Like comparing to it a brick and mortar, it's the behavior of of the people. It's the same thing, just converted into digital. One thing that I've I've been saying that for a while about the pop-ups as an example of of the pollution, and some people were coming back to me saying, "Hey, 
but it's work. It works, right? It just works. You get more subscribers because pop-ups just work. And what I usually say to that, and I think it's connected to what you're saying, is the fact that it's not because you get more of them that they will be more like engaged with your brands. It's not because basically the more you're going to get, the less quality leads you're going to get out of it because you kind of force them for something that they don't really want. And they are like, mm, okay, I'll just do it. And then at the, in the long run, those people are not, are not going to be as valuable as, as the one that actually genuinely want to be part of your family, of your brand or follow yep. your movement. Agreed. And it, I, I always try to avoid to generalize, right? I'm sure that we, if we spend some time, we could find cases of where some kind of pop-up behavior could help with an experience, even though, yeah, we both probably digress about that. But but let's just, like for the moment, not generalize. But it, it all comes down to what do you want to achieve, right? Um, so if you're in it for a two-year job and you just want to get a raise, maybe a pop-up is the way to go, right? You can impress someone and get a raise. But it, if you're building a business that's in it for the long game, I love to call it the long game, like the long-term wins, and, and you have a North Star, then like basing your decisions on that like will, will, will definitely change like the, the path you take. Yeah, and I think it's much easier to do such a thing when your DNA, uh, your company, your leaders in the company believe in the same thing, right? Uh, I think if you're an isolated person trying to do good in your company, it might be much tougher. Uh, but yeah, to clarify about pop-ups, what I really always mean when I say that is talking about aggressive pop-ups. Yeah, I so uh, thought uh, so. The abandonment ones, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, for example, the ones that, that piss people off, they are some very good the ones that could work very well depending on who uh, the people are and what they're doing on the website. Okay. Um, well, I'd like to go a little bit deeper now into actual tactics and things that people can take away from this episode and actually do on their side. So I've watched a few of your videos and I kind of know the answer to this question, but listeners probably don't. Um, what best practices out there in the field of conversion rate optimization or online growth in general you think are plain wrong? All of them. <laughs> I, know, I know that sounds extreme but we are kind of pretty much completely against the notion of best practices and we kind of make a distinction between best practices and kind of what i call quick wins right so quick wins are kind of the no-brainers so building up commitment is instead of asking someone to fill out a 30 field form right so the conversion killers if we if we want to call them that um, like less noise, more white space, like one could call these best practices, right? But I'm saying I'm against best practices purely because today best practices have become this output from blogs, from all these inbound marketers who are trying to get traffic and, and all these backlinks, right? So we've polluted best practices to the point where I would say scrap best practices. And there's another aspect to it as well, which is, we are entering a phase where competition has never been in the way it is, right? If we look just at the tech stack of tools in, in every possible area we can imagine, like starting from marketing tech or ad tech or whatever, there's going to be just so many players out there, so many companies competing with each other, that if you are relying on best practices, you're already screwed. So you need to be different. You need to stand out. So if you're running your marketing on your business based on the playbook that someone else wrote, you're kind of pretty much fucked, right? So 
because the chances are that the, you are the only one doing that are kind of quite remote. So at Hotjar, kind of, we've identified three key enemies that we have as a business, right? Because with this vision, again, I told you, I always like to think, define the opposite. <laughs> so our three opposites are um, leading in front, best practices. So we hate that. Um, Second is the hippos, so the highest person in the room or the client or whatnot. So we like to think the hot dark gives kind of the, the proof to, to marketers and, and designers to kind of beat the hippo. Um, and the third is design fads, right? So flat design is in or this color is the way to go and uh, project slick and all this stuff. So, so there's a, <laughs> I can't tell you the amount of times I've had a client tell me, we're working on a big project right now. It's called project slick. I was like, yeah, I, I don't want to hear about that. So, so if I had to say, if I had to share tactical stuff, I'd say really focus on one, empathizing with the experience of your site. Like literally record yourself using the site. Do it every now and then or watch other people doing it. Use user testing uh, sites. Like it's usually this is every client that I worked with when I was consulting, this was always the biggest opportunity that they don't truly realize the experience they're putting their users through. So start from there because I guarantee that you're probably clueless. Like, it even happens to me. Like I was just thinking yesterday, shit, I haven't done it in a month and I was recording myself using the site and onboarding on the tools like, oh my God, this is so horrible. We have to fix so many things here because it sheds light on the data I've been seeing, right? So put things into perspective. Um, um, so yeah, focus a lot on that. Um, and then also within the company, start thinking and investing your time. Think of ways of how you're going to spend more time with your customers. What are going to be the models, the 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 kind of campaigns, the the systems you're going to put in place to do that? Are you going to have like a customer time webinar? Are you going to start doing cold calls? Should you jump on a bus and spend one week every quarter running around meeting customers? Like nothing beats the field study approach if you're going to if you want to kind of some of the biggest breakthroughs from scientists did not come from them analyzing past results from other scientists in a lab right they went out there and they did field studies they got their hands dirty so it's the same concept but obviously i would be pissed off with myself if i didn't leave you with some tactics right so i have to give you some some kind of quick wins. So the things that I like to mention are definitely, I mentioned them already kind of a little bit. The biggest, like most common win that most conversion uh, uh, agencies or, or, or in-house teams always get, so typically always wins, is removing shit. Just kill stuff from the site or from the page. So it's good to look, and that's that's one of the big values of using tools like heat maps and recordings. What are people actually using? What are they interesting in, interested in? Get rid of all the other stuff and just focus. Like the world is becoming busier, 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 right? There's no time. So so definitely at least try and test making things simpler. So that's one. Two, build up commitment. Again, because time is becoming so much more limited and we're becoming all so much more impatient. I can drop a little gold nugget here in our polls and surveys that we see with our customers. 
time is coming up more and more and more across all industries, across all companies. When we ask people, why didn't you sign up? Why didn't you buy? I don't have time. I don't have time. There's no time. So build up commitment. Think about um, maybe if, if your pro, can your process actually be broken down into more steps as opposed to less steps? Because more steps build up commitment, easy, simple steps to build up commitment, right? So test, experiment a lot with different ways of, of building up commitment. So, so that, that, that is definitely a, a big win. And then, and then third one that I'll leave you with is do not underestimate the power of social proof and experiment with different ways of doing it. Like Basecamp is a company that does this really well. They've experimented with showing photos of their customers and quotes. Now they have this awesome new homepage that is like an endless scroll of like thousands of testimonies. It's really, really clever. I wonder if they got a big win from that, right? So spend time investing, getting your company onto uh, famous uh, magazines or, or sites so that you can then use that endorsement and getting your customers to give you testimonials that you can then show on the site. Um, so yeah, definitely invest a lot of time into that. Before going back into the tactical stuff, I'd like to come back to what you said, and I think it is very important, about the difference between best practices and quick wins. And uh, on my, like our way of, of thinking about it is that ask yourself the question, when you hear about a best practice, is it going to be true in 10 years? And if it's not going to be true in 10 years, or if you're not sure, then it's the best practice. If, it's a, if it is going to be true still in 10 years, then it's a quick win. The reason behind that is that people are not going to change, right? We are animals. Our evolution has started billions of years ago. It's not that in five years, it's not going to change. The way we think, the way we behave, it's always going to come from the same thing. So if things... If you're doing things based on this behavior, based on actual people way of thinking or behaving, it's probably a quick win. It's probably something that is so deeply rooted in our DNA that it's never going to change. But the color of a call to action based on absolutely nothing else, it's going to change because probably in 10 years, we're not going to have websites in the, in the current form. We're probably not going to have website for most. It's probably going to have be live chat and whatever. We'll talk about that later. But that's usually how we split it. I, I couldn't have put it in a better way. In fact, I, I remember being impressed a year ago. I had a quote, or I think it was an article or interview with the guys at Amazon, who I am deeply impressed by uh, for the business that they've built. Um, and basically, one thing which was kind of quite pivotal for me to really process, and I think about this quite a lot, which is they said at Amazon, they invest a lot and a lot of their strategy is around, just as you said, the things that don't change. So they believe that winning today and winning in 10 years time has nothing to do with the tech, but it's just investing in the thing. So if, so people will always want fast delivery, right? People will always want great service. People will always want a lot of choice of products. Like these are like fundamental human like uh, needs. So spot on. I like the way you put that. I'm stealing it. Uh, <laughs> well, it's, it's actually, I've learned that from Basecamp. And it's funny that we have the same kind of uh, people that we follow. Uh, I've learned, uh, it's, it's called uh, the first principles in philosophy. Uh, and if I, if I remember well, I think it's stoicism is talking about that a little bit, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, the best way to build a business is by focusing on the first principle, which is things that will never change. For us, just to give an example, 
one thing that will never change is that companies will always try to understand people, their customer. Like, it's not going to change. They will always try. However, in 10 years or 20 years, will they, will they, will, uh, will they care about the design of their websites? You know what? We don't know because perhaps in 20 years, there won't be much of a website to, to build upon. Perhaps one website is going to be built for one person. It's going to be, you know, inter, inter, artificial intelligence building it for you, creating this connection. And basically every single website will be different. Every interaction we have with, with somebody will be different, right? So this is the best way to do it is by yeah, focusing on, as you said, the things that will never change. And it's, it's tough to think about. And actually it's, Elon Musk, who's talking about it as well, is a very good interview. I don't know if you watched it. He's in his factory. He's talking to this uh, guy uh, who interviews entrepreneurs. And he's saying that at the end, he's saying the one piece of advice for entrepreneurs and, and anybody out there is to think about first principles. It's much tougher to think about first principle rather than an analogy, but it actually creates new opportunities because you think about the core of everything instead of comparing yourself. I love that. I haven't seen that interview, so I just wrote that down, actually. I'll, uh, we'll share that on the show notes for the listeners out there awesome. uh, who, who are interested as well. Uh, I'll, I'll send you the, the address. Right. Coming back to the tactics, right? So you actually started to answer a question I wanted to ask you after, which is great, which is let's visualize the fact that we are a digital marketer uh, in a business with a website that is working quite well already with quite a lot of visitors, right? And your task to understand why things are not working or why conversion are not there, right? So you mentioned three things that you would already do, such as uh, doing user testing yourself, right? Doing user testing or hiring a, a panel of user tests uh, to do that for you. Then you mentioned number two, don't remember now. Um, so using like recording technology, like we have in Hotjar, for example, many other tools have it as well. So it's the ability to pretty much record how HTML is being consumed and then re, re kind of recompiling it. So you can actually see how your visitors are using the site. That is another form of great empathy. Do you have a methodology? Would you give a methodology to this, to those people sure. to use to fix those issues? To fix the issues that you can that you find throughout uh, it's more like the, the issue in the business saying, Hey, the website is not working. What methodology would you use? To go through this. Oh, got it. Oh, I could spend a whole interview just on that, I think. Um, well, in a nutshell, I'd say the key, the key co concept to start with when you're optimizing is that the big variable in optimization is resource, right? So the big limitation is resource. So if one, you are optimizing the wrong thing, then your chance of success is nil. Right. So the most important thing and the most it's it's the thing that get, that most optimizers get wrong. The most common is choosing what to optimize, because even I, I, in, sometimes when I speak, I also do this like I, I take like the average job is five years. Right. Five years is 260 weeks. It's not a lot. Right. Six weeks, is not a lot. So let's assume that you can test once every two weeks. And if you can, that's really fucking lucky. So we're already half. Assume for holidays, leave um, again, half again, potentially, and assume all the problems anyway. And then assume the tests that fail 
I think I remember that every year, like you're pretty much down to a handful of like potential successes, right? So you really need to choose like the places where it matters. So this is going to be an analogy interview. So just like a surgeon, like you go in because you you're, you have problems, he's not going to look at the the veins in your fingers, right? He's going to look at arteries with big with with big flow. So one of the key things as an optimizer is to understand where are the big levers of success. Which part of the site, which step in the flow is the one where I need to kind of focus on first? And we typically suggest that you start by looking at where are the biggest drop-off points, right? So if there is a funnel, right, the classical funnel, where is it that we have the biggest flow and the biggest drop-off of that? So that is your biggest opportunity. And that kind of allows you to then anchor your empathy, Right. So then once you know that and you go out there, I, I then actually tell tell our users, uh, uh, our customers at Hodra, I told them, don't look at recordings of people abandoning at that point, though, because that's the mistake most people do, because then then you're seeing the result. You're not understanding the reason. So then I like to look at like if like 200 recordings. I know it sounds like a, a lot of work, right? But that's how you succeed. It's with hard work. So you watch like 200 recordings of people converting, but observe their behavior at that point, which is your biggest drop-off point. Where are they hesitating? What are they doing? And then ask a question. Ask a question at that point and ask a question at the very end. So asking at that point, quick question. If you decided not to sign up, buy, blah, 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 what was it that stopped you? And then ask at the end to the ones that did convert, um, what was it that nearly stopped you from converting or buying or signing up? So it's these data points, right, which we call the big picture at Hotjar, which give you this holistic empathy. And that's really where you start to connect the dots and say, shit, this is what we need to fix. Um, that's the methodology. It is very qualitative. Um, but I am a big believer in the qualitative approach. We'll share, you produced a diagram uh, that actually summarized it quite well. Uh, we'll share that on the show notes as well. But that's actually really valuable. And I think a lot of digital marketers out there tend to look at numbers a little bit too much, as we mentioned before, instead of being a little bit more empathetic towards actual people. Because emotions are very difficult to quantify. But when you talk to five customers who are already pissed off about a particular page on your website, that's going to stick to you. And yeah. that might actually help convincing your boss to change things much yeah. more than a spreadsheet full of numbers. And, and, and there's an interesting point there, uh, which is the qualitative side, the empathy is kind of like a torch or, or a spectacles that allow you to interpret the numbers then. So I can't mention to you the, the endless amount of times that I've, I've worked with clients and even at Hodjar where because I'm empathetic and I've spoken to customers, they were looking at Google Analytics or some kind of event tracking. And I see the team, they're coming up with theories. So this drop off there, or people are doing this because we think that this is happening. And I was like, guys, like I spoke to 10 customers yesterday and they're all confused by that. That's why they're adding it to the cart 10 times. It's not like because they want 10 of them. So it's like, it, it sheds light. It allows you to then understand the numbers, right? So it's without that, you really are looking at the numbers in the dark, kind of. And it goes back to what we talked about. What do we know will be, that will still be true in 10 years? What I know will still be true in 10 years is that people connect with stories. We are... True. Our brain is, is, our brain is geared towards listening to stories and 
caring when stories are being told because that's how we evolved in the like thousands and, and, and hundreds of thousands of years. So, and I think it goes to the next question I wanted to ask, which is how do you actually convince the C-suite uh, like managers and leaders in, the, in a company to actually start caring about people? And we already started to answer that. I think telling the story of the user instead of the numbers could be a start, right? That, that's a very good way of putting it. Um, we we noticed that, for example, more this is less internal, right? More in a client environment, that clients are much more persuaded and really enjoy visually seeing what their users and customers are doing. We all engage with that, as you said. It's just the ability to see the experience, the story. We all want, we all love seeing a story. So I think, yeah, I think visual proof is definitely kind of our take at Hotjar. Like we always try and think, how do we visualize this? How do we make it like really easy to grasp or sell to others? So I definitely, definitely agree with that. Um, then though, there is a cultural piece, which is, some C-level people just don't connect the dots between when when you do something that people care about, it actually impacts the business. And honestly, from the bottom of my heart, if you work in a company where you don't see the opportunity to change that and you see that is happening, just quit. Move to another company where they do, right? So don't like time is the, the most important resource of all. So don't waste your time with companies that that, that don't think that way. And for a leader that don't that doesn't think this way but wants to change, how would you try to convince this person? Oh, that's a good question, right? It's like trying the whole trying to bring the horse to the water thing. Well, I'll I'll try to convince him by getting his team to quit, right? That's <laughs> that's gonna be my approach. Yeah, it's it's difficult. It's it's very difficult to persuade someone who does not have a user-oriented mindset to see the light, let's say. It is very difficult. So I will not pretend to, to have the answers on this. I, I don't think I know the answer to that question. Um, I think the best example is to show examples of, of, of companies that have failed because of it and others that have succeeded because of it. But my gut feeling of knowing some people who are like this is that that might not be enough. Um, so some of us just need to go through the journey of seeing that that doesn't work, unfortunately. That makes sense. Moving on to the future, I think we talked about the future a little bit, but what do you think marketers should learn today that will help them in five years or 10 years? I think the key skill set for a marketer, more important than anything else, is copy. It's mastery of words. Um, secondary to that is how to visually present that words. And I say it secondly, because visual is the, is the interface of today, right? But it might not be the interface of tomorrow. But words and language are the universal kind of interface. Um, I see so many marketers and businesses and founders, entrepreneurs, like it's nearly universal that have great idea, have great execution, but just fail to have what I call, which is salesmanship in web. It's the ability to, to communicate your ideas to an audience and explain why they should be buying from you, why they should come to you. So 
I was kind of lucky back in the day. I, I, I actually used to do some parties as well, so amongst many other jobs. So I used to organize uh, events and we had a community, a big following. And I used to send SMSs every week and emails. And this was my opportunity to experiment with like wording and text that worked and being more authentic. And so it's, it's really important for marketers to learn what wording and, and, and the importance, especially today, of authenticity and not this old style copy of a writing like in a technical way. I think, honestly, if, if you cannot master this as a marketer, you, you're just, you're just going to be a shitty marketer, basically. So it's how to communicate to other people, how to convince other people. I like that. So the copy, visualization and the authenticity. I think that's a good mix of things that people should should start learning today. I know it's a difficult exercise to ask you, but it like technology is changing so much at the minute. What do you think the internet is going to look like in 10 years? Oh. <laughs> I wish I knew the answer to that question. I can answer the question of where we see it evolving to, right? The internet has pretty much been shit to date. It's crap. It's like a collection of HTML files and horrible technologies that just don't work together. And it just feels like finally we're kind of starting to fix that. In typical humanity fashion, like we're starting to do that at the point where competition is incredible and like there's reaching saturation points and there's nowhere else to go. <laughs> so I think the internet is going to become more it's going to become more about the relationship. It's going to become more about the interaction and it's going to become personal. Um, so the interface of that is difficult to imagine, but I imagine an experience which nearly transcends the internet, which is nearly irrelevant of it. So I think in 10 years time, because 10 years is a long time, right? 10 years, I don't even want to think about how I was, I was using resources 10 years ago. Um, but my gut feeling at the accelerated rate that we're moving is that the experience is going to be more personal. It's going to be much more contextual and intelligent. So we will need to make less effort to get to the tools and the resources we need based on the context of the day or location or whatnot. That's like based on the technology already available, it's just going to be a, a no-brainer. So we said personal, contextual, and definitely it feels like we're on the same page. It's going to be much less visual. Voice, so the whole verbal thing, I'm really big on that. I really believe in it. Um, just because we might be doing it in the wrong way now might mean that it might not be available in 10 years' time, but God knows. But yeah, I think, um, yeah, I would say contextual, personal, and more human kind of. So that's why verbal is kind of, it's where I would, I would put my chips. I'd put my chips on that, that box. Right. Two questions before we wrap up. What are the top three resources do you would recommend digital marketers to read or view or watch or consume? So there's one book that has transformed my idea of marketing completely. Um, and basically made me realize that, again, the world we live in today has made marketing mean more about reach and more about channel. But marketing really has nothing to do with that, in my opinion. So it's, it's a book, it's called The 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing. 
and basically talks about yeah the the title kind of is misleading right but there's there's like in every book there's the good and the bad but what i love about this book is it it focuses a lot about the concept of positioning so the main concept in the book is that marketing is a battle of the mind it's not a battle of products right so and i really love this completely changed the way i think about marketing so it's all of a sudden after reading this book like looking at google analytics or how the ads are doing or or what not like does not interest me anymore as in it's still important someone is looking at them <laughs> but for me i am as as a as a marketer i i see myself more as a general overseeing the battle of this mind uh, of the minds, right? So how are we going to be perceived and how are, what moves are we making next to generate demand for, for us? So that is definitely one, one resource. Um, number two is, we mentioned copy already, right? So you'll notice I'm a big believer in books, right? So I, I read blogs, but I, I think they're, they're not even, like close to the deep reading and, and like on, on topics you get from books. So reading about copy in general, I think is really important. So anything related to uh, the work by John Caples, um, there's many copywriters out there, Dan Kennedy, like go out there and discover what was the beginning of advertising, right? What, what, what how were these guys, what did they learn writing copy and getting people to act 20, 30, 40 years ago. Getting to the roots of, of how this whole movement started is so important. Um, and then the third is, I would say, train yourself in UX. Um, go out there. The minimum would be, if I had to mention a book, it would be Don't Make Me Think by Steve Krug, who's, who's awesome. Um, but maybe go out there, get a course, use tools, like become the closest you can be to a UX person. Um, because essentially marketing is becoming, we talked about in 10 years time where we're going, right? So marketing is becoming more and more the experience. So if you don't understand how the, the experience is designed and measured, then you're going to become an irrelevant marketer very quickly. And who do you think I should interview next? Well, if, if there were no limits... And this is more from a marketer point of view, right? Steve Krug would be one hell of a person to interview. I've sent him a few cold emails, but he hasn't replied to me yet. But I, I'll manage. I will manage. I will manage soon. Maybe he hears this interview. and he'll Just, just send me an email, Steve, man. I'm waiting. And Jay Simmons from Atlassian. He's the man. He's the man. I'll use that as, a, as an excuse to, to send them a cold email. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good way of doing it. That's a good way of doing it. Or we can go at it together. You know, yeah, to that's send. a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> All right, David, you've been absolutely awesome. Where can listeners connect with you, and learn from you more? So they can find me on Twitter. Unfortunately, I don't have exactly the easiest surname, but it's at David Darmanin, which is D-A-R-M-A-N-I-N. But if you just search Twitter, David Hardjar, you're going to find me. Um, but basically, yeah, I, I love to, I, I don't interact as much as I should, but if you ask me a question, I always reply. Um, so I, I love to interact in that way. But also, um, I also am, we are a big believer that the whole company does support so if you are a user of Hotjar or you're a customer and you ask questions on chat, 
it will get redirected to me and I do answer questions. So that's the best way to get in touch with me. Super. Uh, David, thanks again uh, for all of your, of your time. We'll share the notes uh, of this podcast and all the stuff we talked about as soon as it's published. Thanks for having me. I'm really impressed by the movement you're creating. And I'm also really, imp- like, really clever questions. And I'm honestly really enjoyed this debate, man. Well done. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email lists uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get and I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests and perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday so don't be afraid to subscribe I'm not going to spam you and you can always unsubscribe for sure if you wish the second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback we know that this show is not perfect yet and we always Uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five-star review it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker So thank you so much once again and au revoir. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.